All right, John. Um, so what's been the most uh, difficult hurdle so far? So I would say executing at scale, Bradford. Um, executing at scale. What In Malawi, service providers in construction and transport, logistics, uh, there's sort of two categories of service provider. Uh, one category is servicing sort of official Malawi. They're building embassies. They're building high-end uh, gated communities. And that's a very small and very expensive subset of the construction service provider market in, in Malawi. What we have had to do is we have had to uh, engage really as small farm cities in our own construction and project management. And so executing at scale is complicated. Service providers in construction, whether it's building greenhouses or building houses or really any phase of construction, they're used to sort of a subsistence scale, not a commercial scale. So we've been applying pressure on the market, if you will, on service providers who are used to doing small projects and we're kind of pushing them to do bigger projects. So I would say the biggest obstacle at this point has been executing at that scale. Um, so we've learned a lot, but that has been the biggest hurdle so far. Gotcha. Um, what about, um, I remember when we were in the summertime, right? You had that cost overrun that hit um, when you were building greenhouses and we kind of had to like do some emergency financing and really like kind of get it together. What, what happened there? And what do you think we learned speaking of scale? Like, because that kind of issue becomes way gnarlier, right? If you're, if you're talking about, uh, you know, a hundred hectare site instead of where we're at now. So what, what happened? How do we start to have more predictability of cost and so on as we scale? Well, so tying it really to the last question, I mean, what we're doing, what we did and how we overcame it is we really took a very hands-on approach to every aspect of the supply chain and then every aspect of the construction. Um, what we did is we basically took over the construction. We also took over the supply chain. And um, so vertically integrating was like really important. It was super important. To, to sort of take the levers of what was impacting our timeline. You know, our timeline is different than any timelines that a lot of, a lot of these service providers have ever, have ever experienced. So um, by taking over those levers, it really helped us build our own internal capacity. And we are now to the point where we we now can build our own greenhouses. In fact, of the 14 greenhouses, the last four we built as small farm cities. Uh -huh. So in other words, we essentially took over those aspects of the business. And we're also, I think one of the key lessons and sort of takeaways is that we are now also gonna be in, engaged in our own procurement, uh, our own supply procurement. Okay. So we become the importer of sort of those products, those elements of a project that have to be imported. Um, we're actually going to do our own importing. So the, the hard news was we applied 
incredible pressure on the agronomist who also built greenhouses, but he had only ever built small greenhouses. He never built big greenhouses. So, you know, building these relationships, we have great agronomy, really excited about the agronomy, but on the project and the construction management, we really had to take over. What about the uh, currency devaluation? That was an issue too, right? Huge issue. Yeah. No. So what do you do about that? All the inflation. Okay. Well, on currency, there's sort of two ways to manage currency. But first, a, a word about the currency situation. Basically, Malawi is a price taker on sort of global currency. So inflationary pressure in the United States, you can almost multiply it by two or three by the time you get to Malawi, because Malawi's currency is highly correlated to the dollar. Uh-huh. And so the way that that has to be managed is you, you really have to diversify your product output. We are, we are servicing the domestic market in Malawi, but we are also very much looking at um, structuring export agreements. Export to it can be to Dubai, it can be to Europe, but basically, as you you know, as you look at the way we're growing tomatoes, the way we're raising fish, what we're doing is we're going to be complying with global standards so that we can export. And as long as we can export product, we can get U.S. dollar payments, and we can have a balanced approach to our revenue model for small farm cities that both is domestic sales and also export sales. And we're very much engaged. All that we're doing on the standard side is designed so that we can export and manage our currency risk. Got it. Um, Okay, as we're on the finance track, um, I think there's a couple really interesting things you mentioned to me. One is like you can't finance what you can't audit. And then that Africa, like sort of pan-Africa, there's a big challenge with infrastructure financing. so I want to unpack these a little bit because I think that's really important to your thesis for the business, right? It's like being able to finance projects both through the audibility of production and also through the separation of equity and infrastructure financing, right? Um, and, and basically dealing with Africa's inability to raise um, muni bonds pretty much, right? So can you talk us through these two a little bit? Sure. Yeah. When I say you can't finance what you can't audit, uh, another way of saying that is you can't fund the informal. Um, The informal market, um, the casual market, the paper currency market, um, there's essentially no way to fund that that type of economic activity. And 90% of African economic activity is in the informal. And it really starts with land rights, land tenure, but then sort of translates or converts more broadly. So people are not bankable. Um, Their businesses are not auditable. And then like towns are not auditable and even countries are not audible. So it's just extremely difficult to, to, to bring together a long-term financing package that will then finance kind of critical infrastructure. So 
Small Farm Cities tackles that head on. What we do is we essentially, we don't do this for the whole country. We just do this for the footprints that we're, that we're working in. But for whether it's five acres or 500 acres or 5,000 acres, what we're building and baking in is formality. So what we're doing is every, you know, the land itself has to be titled property or else small farm cities won't build there. Once you have titled property, then the contractual relationships between um, parties involved, whether it's the landowner or it's the businesses that are operating within that environment, everything is now auditable and therefore everything becomes bankable. So what we're creating is we're essentially creating bankability at a footprint at a time. And part of the part of the rationale of doing, you know, tomatoes and fish, these are hard assets that actually are bankable. And very soon we'll be getting into more poultry. Uh, we can do grain, we can do corn, we can do cassava. Really, there's no limit to sort of the commodity and the commodities are bankable. So that's on the auditability side and on the enterprise side of finance. Now, What's true of a business then becomes true of a community, even a district or, uh, or, or the country itself. And this is where I get into municipal bond structure. Things like water systems, power, these things are necessary for enterprise to operate, but they themselves are not going to return 20, 30, 40% returns. So in a healthy economic environment, you match investor interest with the activity. So in the United States and in developed economies, you have a municipal bond market that funds things like power plants and water systems. So the U.S municipal bond market is $6 trillion. And that's how you finance hospitals and schools. These things are necessary to build communities, but they're not generating 30% returns. You know, they're generating 5%. And those who are investing in that kind of investment, they're looking for long-term AAA safe returns. When you have that kind of infrastructure in place, then enterprise investment can can then flourish and the enterprises then can use that infrastructure and make 20, 30, 40% returns. In Africa, there's no such thing as a municipal bond. For all intents and purposes, municipal finance is, if it's funded at all, it's only through charitable donations. So if you have a highway or you have a water system, it's only funded by grants or donations. It's not funded by a healthy municipal financing structure. So bringing these two pieces together, municipal infrastructure finance, and then enterprise finance, this can actually come together in a small farm city. It becomes essentially a platform where you can finance water systems, finance power, internal infrastructure, and then you have the enterprise. So as Small Farm Cities develops into larger scales, we will be looking 
to really organize municipal finance in the African context and do this in partnership with um, with African stakeholders and international stakeholders. Cool. Okay. Um, so another, as we're kind of going top down here and talking about macros and systems level stuff, another thing that you mentioned to me previously is that you feel small farm cities is basically a system solution to system problems, right? Um, what do you mean by that exactly? Sure. So it really starts with what, what are the risks and challenges to, to meeting, you know, to meeting the, the needs of a, of a community uh, and the risks that you face anywhere in the world, they, they might be financial risks or legal risks. They may be operational risks, environmental, it may be safety or security. In other words, there's, there's a, a whole range of risks and challenges when you're developing a, a project anywhere in the world. The difference between Africa, let's say, and um, a more developed economy is really the exposure and mitigation to those risks. And if you mitigate against um, three out of six risks, those other three risks that you don't have a solution for could kill the project. So when you're implementing developmental um, plans and investments, you have to actually address all the risks because you're only ever as strong as the weakest link. You may have figured out most of the model, but it's that one part of the model that you didn't figure out that could kill you. And so you can't just say, oh, I need better fertilizer. I need better seed for my tomatoes. No, <laughs> you need a whole lot more than that. And where we come in as small farm cities is really in contrast to a lot of the developmental approaches that have been uh, pursued in Africa unsuccessfully, which is, hey, we need farmers, they need better seed, they need better fertilizer, or, oh, farmers, they need water to irrigate their plants. Well, yeah, they definitely need water to irrigate their plants, but what about the roads? What about the supply chains? What about the currency issues? What about the banking and finance? In other words, because operating in Africa involves legal, financial, operational, social, environmental, and security challenges, then if you're going to operate successfully, you better have answers for all those same challenges or else you're going to fail. And unfortunately, most projects fail because they haven't managed all the risks. So it takes a systems approach to address a system's challenge. Uh -huh. So, you know, this is also kind of a lesson for those involved in technology because there's a lot of technological innovation being pursued in Africa, but it's, its development of technology in Africa is stunted. The development of FinTech in Africa is stunted. It like runs against a block wall because, because other risks aren't considered. So a fintech solution in a developed economy can take off. But a payment platform or a prop tech 
solution or some type of technological application in Africa runs into some, you know, seemingly random problem, but it's not a random problem. You know, it's, it's a, it's part of a systemic, you know, set of challenges. So small farm cities is specifically designed to address all of the key risk elements, have answers to those risks and provide solutions to those risks. Got it. Um, okay, so if you think about this as being like this fully integrated systems kind of solution, and we look at the size of the sites that we've done so far and think about building a network of much larger sites that can accommodate, you know, millions, potentially even hundreds of millions of folks in Africa. Um, what does that look like? Is there some kind of a franchise model or something? Like, how do you scale it to be so large? So this is, I think, one of the fun, one of the most fun parts of small farm cities. What we're doing is we're taking routine activities, like activities that are routine all across Africa. So 80% of the African of African economies are agriculture based. So we're taking agriculture, we're taking housing, we're taking water, we're taking electricity, we're taking all of these kind of routine everyday kind of activities. They're 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 going on today. All we're doing is we're coordinating it, we're organizing it, and we're making it bankable. We're making it fundable, investable by international standards. So what we're doing is we're taking Africa's routines and we're just making them, we're coordinating them, making them more efficient, more productive. And by doing that, there's really no limit to the scale. I mean, you know, the reason we're doing tomatoes and fish is because people eat tomatoes and fish every day. They would eat, they would eat, they eat eggs. They, they eat, you know, cucumbers and peppers and, you know, so what we're doing and then welding and carpentry and, and water system, plumbing, electricity, fabrication, we're taking kind of the routines and we're building systems around them and then making them financeable and bankable by international standards, which is then franchisable. In other words, small farm cities doesn't have to like be the operator. We can be the system and the partner of operators. In fact, Bradford, in Malawi, it's, it's Malawians who are building small farm cities. Like I would love to say, hey, I built that house. I didn't build that house. Malawians built that house. Malawians built the greenhouses. Malawians are growing the tomatoes. So there's not a function really with small farm cities that can't be carried out by an African. Um, and that's the, that's the whole idea. I mean, it's, it is truly an African company. Um, we have, you know, it's African management, our attorneys, African, our accountants are African, you know? And so this whole design is modeled so that it can be implemented and scaled massively in in the African continent. And that comes from your experience working in Africa, right? Like I didn't I didn't uh 
sort of prepare for this earlier, but just want to insert this just because I'm realizing now for folks that are tuning in that don't know your background. Can you just give me a couple minutes on your background and experience in Africa and how that has really influenced how you've thought of this project? Because I think your approach is like fairly unique and it really comes from a boots on the ground uh, perspective, right? It does. Yeah. I, uh, so it's 2022. So I started investing, uh, as a private developer investor in 2008. So about 14 years ago. And, um, I've been involved in commercial agriculture investment, but very quickly into my investments in Ghana, um, I realized that you can't, just build an agricultural operation. You have to also have solutions in electricity and roads and transport and logistics. I had the good fortune of partnering early on with um, uh, my my colleague Isa Baluch from Dubai. Um, Isa had built a freight logistics network on behalf of Dubai Ports World and Emirates Sky Cargo. Very involved in African transport logistics but hubbing through Dubai. Uh, also had good fortune of working with some financial, some private equity funds, very active in, in the African continent. So what I was able to glean um, over the last decade or so is that you're only as strong as your weakest link. That comes from firsthand experience. It also comes from you know, some, some painful lessons along the way. So, yeah, I've worked in Ghana, I've worked in Ethiopia, I've worked in Rwanda, Somalia, uh, and um, Kenya, Nigeria, uh, worked in special economic zones, um, worked in e-commerce, worked in supply chain logistics and infrastructure. Um, And then agriculture has always sort of been a platform uh, to work on really infrastructure related investments. Got you. Um, One thing you've said to me before is that it's been important to get um, sort of the the cheapest high quality house you would live in and sort of keep driving that cost down. I think right now it's at like $3,300 or something, right? Um, Why is that so important to you and, and what's the journey been like so far? Well, I would say it's a bit philosophical, but also very practical. Um, I early on, I mean, over the last decade or so, I've I've taken on a mantra, and this is the mantra of small farm cities, which is if I need it, they need it. And what that basically means is if I, as an international developer, international investor, if I need um, to meet a certain standard, if I if I need a, to, to, to achieve a certain quality standard, there's, no, there's not two different standards, one for me and one for my partners in, in Africa. And that translates into the house itself. Um, what The bottom line is that Africa is a full member of the global market and the global community, full member. And so if you go into Africa and you have a different standard for yourself as an international developer, and then, then you would expect for the African partner, you, you sort of start with an imbalance. 
So I want to build houses in Africa that I would live in. In fact, the houses we built, it, 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 the houses that we've already built in Mpingu and Malawi, I've stayed in those houses and I'm happy to stay in those houses. So the bottom line is you can't have two different sets of standards. And too often in development in Africa, they've settled for lower standards, lower performance standards, higher costs, less efficient. And then they wonder why Africa experiences so much pressure from imports, imported goods, and why, there's, why the low-cost production and the low-cost provider is always coming in from, from outside of Africa. And so, you know, it's, it's very much not just a philosophical, but a practical emphasis of small farm cities that we focus on global standards, period. And so if, it has, if it's the house, if it's the greenhouse, if it's the fish, you know, it's global standards or, or, or bust. And it sort of translates from, you know, our willingness, my willingness to live in a house, um, occupy a house and make sure the water is running, make sure the water is clean, make sure the power is working, you know, that that's really the principle behind behind that point. Got it. Um, so tell me about, I know Mpengu is sort of like a six, six acres, right? And I think it's like you did an initial like 90 day build out sprint, um, which I think is really impressive. Like what were you able to do in 90 days? Why is speed so important? Like uh, when you're getting these things off the ground? Well, so time is money. And pressure is a positive, you know, it's a positive element to getting projects done in this environment. Um, the pressure, you know, it's, it's self-imposed, but it's also then pressure on all the service providers. It sets a really positive tone uh, to get things done. If, if there was some virtue in, in, you know, in going slow, you know, you go slow, but there's no virtue in going slow. Um, now, you don't want to rush things because you want to meet the high standards. But the thing is, in development, um, what too often happens is um, people study and analyze things to death. I mean, there, there's like re feasibility reports and studies that are just been funded with millions of dollars. And our view was, look, <laughs> the only real feasibility like report that will have credibility is to actually go do it. We could have studied it and we wouldn't have known anything. So you got to go do it. Now, you got to do it at a scale that, you know, is manageable. The margin for, you know, mistakes is very thin and we did experience that earlier this year with our greenhouse construction. But if we hadn't applied that pressure on that greenhouse construction, we may have missed sort of some of the most important takeaways that now will inform, you know, the next thousand greenhouses that we build. So, you know, it's really necessary to have a certain amount of intensity not just to be, you know, intense for the sake of being intense, 
But because so many things have to move in sync, so many things have to be synchronized. And even, you know, your engagement with the market has to be synchronized and you have to engage the market so that you know how much the market can absorb and, and really at what point and what the opportunities are in the marketplace. That's why we kind of break this into 90-day sprints. And we're about to enter another 90-day sprint that takes us into January. Got you. Got you. Um, what does it look like uh, the next the next level of scale then? I guess maybe like, you know, somewhere from 10,000 to 50,000 or whatever. Like what is sort of like a mini, like a town or village scale? I don't know what the term you would use, you, you know, but so you, like you get, the, get the point, right? Yeah, no, I like it. No, it's it's... It's it's a town. It's okay, a town. like a town. Um, yeah, what does it look like to build a town? Yeah, like in the yeah. tens of. Well, thousands. you know, like we we're used to talking about SMEs, small and medium sized enterprises. I, I think we can talk about SMCs, small and medium sized cities. Nice, nice. I like um, that. You know, an SMC is like, um, you know, you've got Minneapolis, Minnesota, but then you've got like small agricultural towns that are all feeders to Minneapolis. Right. And. You know, Africa doesn't have any SMCs. Like, there's just no SMCs. You have Nairobi or the bush. You uh -huh. get Lagos or the bush. You know, so small farm cities, they don't have to be small cities. Like, Chicago is a small farm city. It's just when you iterate small farm clustering, and then you bring in banking, and you bring in universities, and all of a sudden right. you've got a million people. Right. So our point is that it goes to an earlier question about franchising and our systems and our systems approach. It's like we're taking the routine of life and we're coordinating it and we're actually physically clustering it uh. into real estate and houses that you can buy and you can actually own and that banks can then finance you as a consumer or as a business or even as a whole town, they can finance um, they can finance the enterprises or you can raise a bond to build a hospital and a school and you can organize a, a health insurance risk pool. So there are iterative steps that are really leveraged and leverageable as we kind of organize larger, larger systems. So, the next step for like, small farms is in Malawi. Just one one second. It sounds like uh, finance and like sort of embedding embedding a lot of financial services and fintech kind of stuff sounds important because you've mentioned things like health insurance or banking services and so on. Um, does that start to come into yes. play at the scale of the tens of thousands, or or is that later when that kind of stuff starts to come into play for you guys as a platform? I think I think like MVP of a town that can like have a cooperative bank that could have like a mutual insurance scheme. I think that the MVP probably starts somewhere around a thousand people. Oh wow, okay. And that can be achieved, you know, that can be achieved pretty quickly. I mean yeah. what we'd like to do in terms of the next step in Malawi is complete a seed round investment where what we're doing is basically building that 
kind of MVP viable town at somewhere over between a thousand and ten thousand population right. over maybe a twenty four to forty eight month time horizon, and that kind of investment, that kind of sort of completing the seed, that builds sort of your you know kind of MVP small hub, like a small rural hub that's now actually becoming kind of like a peri-urban feeder town where you can you can actually work in the city and live in the country. You can commute or you can work in that environment. You can work digitally because there's electricity, there's internet, there's full connectivity. So you can visit, you can be a tourist, you can stay for long-term, you can do research, et cetera. So really where we go from here now is what we're doing at seven acres, we really believe could be done more or less at about 50 to 100 acres and somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people. Okay. So we can, we can essentially, from a population density perspective and from a production perspective, we could probably accommodate somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people with around 50 acres of land. And that is super achievable and financially, you know, viable mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, that's why what we're doing now with the housing is we're, we're basically modeling how we can go to market with different types of houses, sort of starter houses, condominiums, duplexes, shared, you know, kind of accommodation. So what happens so, then when you go from a thousand to 10,000? I think what, what a thousand to 10,000 looks like is, is it will require a centralized municipal utility grid. Mm. So what we want to do, if we go to 10,000, you really have to have a utility. You like you have to have a water and a power utility and a sanitation utility. So that's when now, you have to start bringing in the separate infrastructure financing and like r r doing those projects yourself. Yeah. Yes. That's yes. the one thousand to ten thousand. Okay. I think that I think that's kind of like the step from sort of, you know, kind of bootstrap kind of municipal infrastructure to real municipal infrastructure. I mean, the kind of infrastructure that you would run into if you were driving Interstate 80 in Iowa uh -huh. and you came you know, came through a town and you saw a water tower and there's a water treatment plant and, yep. you know, there's sewage and, right. you know, in town there's a hospital. There has to be a hospital, has to be a school, you know, stuff like that. So Got you. So is, really that, is that how it works then when you go? So then... If you think 10,000, then 100,000, then 100,000, then a million, and you're sort of, you're like you described this almost iterative clustering process, right? Where you would have multiple of these 10,000 things, and then, you know, they might be somewhat independent, but they're sort of geographically clustered. And then you start to have even larger and more central infrastructure across, you know, many of these. Now you have 100,000 people or a million people, and then gradually you have large, you know, commercial structures and like uh, services industries popping up and stuff, right? Like a sort of a business districts, financial districts and so on starts to look like 
a mini city. Is that kind of the vision? Is that like how it would be, how it would emerge or am I off? No, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. Okay. So if you look at, let's say a town of a hundred thousand, a town of a, a like a small city of a hundred thousand is essentially 10, 10,000 person, you know, clusters. Right. So, and the thing about a city of a hundred thousand population would be that if three or four of these 10,000 person clusters want to kind of work together on a hospital or, you know, in a, a, an educational institution or something like that, then that can all be part of the design. So this, the country of Malawi, I've been involved as an advisor for a few years to the government in terms of designing uh, secondary cities in Malawi. And that is to manage their population growth over the next 25 years. They're going to be growing by about 25 million people. So, you know, the need for new cities in Africa is just crazy. Um, if you look at population growth and then you look at sort of the existing urban structures and you say, well, there's just no way that African can develop like this without sort of new city concepts. Yeah. So what we're really offering is if you can organize 10 or 20,000 people in a viable, economically viable cluster, yeah. then you basically have the building blocks for a million people population. Because the only thing you're really doing with the million is you're organizing and coordinating these, these subdivisions and these sub blocks. Yeah. So you take Dubai as just a, an example. Dubai is 23 special economic zones. Yeah. I mean, that's Dubai. So yeah. they have different zones. You know, they have a healthcare city. They have Dubai commercial center. You know, I mean, a commodity trading center. They yeah. have, you know, the Jebel Ali free zone. Yeah. But every zone has a residential component. Yeah. Has an industrial component, has a financial component. Yeah. You know, so every pod that makes up Dubai, all 23 pods, so to speak, are like little towns. Right. So small farm cities becomes like an, kind of an aggregator of routine activities that then can be clustered into sort of reasonable, workable, you know, pods and 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 the more you can coordinate water and electricity in particular and certainly the more you can formalize land tenure so that the land is titled and municipalized incorporated and properly zoned so i would say small farm cities sort of in its ramp up from 10,000 to 100,000 it triggers not just sort of the infrastructure aspects that now need to be at a larger scale, but also zoning kind of regulated, you know, kind of policies that will then, you know, help not international investors so much, but help Malawi, the people of Malawi themselves to actually be able to own their own businesses, own their own homes, make money 
you know, send their kids to a decent school and hopefully avoid, you know, stuff like malaria and other things that have just been, you know, a menace because of poor water quality or, you know, mosquitoes or, you know, yeah. other kinds of challenges that are all preventable. Okay, so one one last uh, final topic here is um, in this last wave of scale. So um, I guess the next step past what we've just been talking about is, you know, I got, you know, sort of pan Malawi, pan East Africa, and then pan Africa, right? Um, what do those steps look like as you start to think about something that's really scaling within Malawi? something that sort of bleeds out across East Africa and then, and then becomes a sort of a Pan-Africa solution. So I would look at this uh, in, in a couple different, you know, from, from a couple different um, points of view. One is sort of the policy. The other is the finance. Then I'll just say the operational issues. So, from a policy perspective, really any country with a decent zoning law could accommodate a small farm city. I mean, the only thing really that we would need in a country is the ability to take a private piece of land and develop that private land with sort of rules and contractual arrangements that allow everyone to become an owner and be able to store value and 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 store sort of the the proceeds that that they're that they're earning. So there's kind of a policy and regulatory framework that's super replicable. Um, I would say Rwanda ha already has a really good zoning law, but other countries also have pretty good zoning laws. And um, I think that that policy aspect we could replicate all across Africa, not a problem. Second is the financing. I would say the financing is like the bridge between the policy and the operations. And the financing sort of has to be public-private partnership. But the public side of it doesn't have to lead. The private sector can really lead. And this is really where I see FinTech being a, a force multiplier, especially if we can get FinTech and, you know, involved in the formation of municipal bonds, um, you know, even crowdfunding, you know, municipal finance that can be super, that can be applied super locally, but basically gives people around the world some sort of an interesting option in terms of like really being able to finance infrastructure and put their dollars into, you know, sort of more interesting financial instruments that could be um, help develop Africa. And so on the operational side, it's really kind of an efficiency issue of transport logistics and um, landlocked countries in the interior of Africa, like Malawi is, there will always be some disadvantages between Malawi and then a coastal country. So, you know, your Kenyas and your Tanzanias and Mozambiques and, you know, your, your countries that are, you know, Nigeria and Ghana that are coastal, there are certain advantages in those countries. Mm -hmm. So scaling up in terms of like operationally would actually be easier in a coastal country than a landlocked country. 
So in summary, I would say the model can work anywhere, but there are operational issues that are, there are financial issues, there are policy and regulatory issues, all of which are very solvable, addressable issues. My bias right now in terms of scale up, I'll just be very transparent. I, I like the financial regulatory environment of Rwanda, mm -hmm. but I also like the operational efficiency of Kenya. So if I'm looking at East Africa, I'm looking at Kenya, I'm looking at Uganda, I'm looking at Tanzania, but in particular, I'm looking at Kenya. The other thing is that from Kenya, operationally, we can then service Somalia. And Somalia, after all these years, is ready actually for development of small farm cities. Sure. In fact, the original small farm city design, I actually designed it for Southern Somalia for refugees nice. who would be leaving, returning to Somalia from Kenya. So I'm very eager to develop small farm cities in Somalia. But the really the operational hub that would be logical would be uh, Kenya, Mombasa and Nairobi. And then the financial hub honestly doesn't have to be in Kenya. It could be in Rwanda, the financial hub where the deals are structured, where you kind of organize the municipal bonds and you organize those structures. And then you build sort of international collaboration that could be done at the Kigali International Financial Center. Yeah. Um, yep. So I'm really very excited about the prospects of scaling this up into other regions. Uh -huh. Nigeria is an incredible tech hub. Um, and so vibrant as an economy. And so, you know, certainly interested in West Africa as well. Yep. You've mentioned, I guess, last little follow up. Um, you've mentioned Nigeria in the past, but that it's also kind of gnarly as well. It's kind of like the it's like the biggest jewel since it's such a large economy, but it's also, you know, has some some challenges. What are the I mean, the, the scale is obvious. Right. But what are the challenges? You know, I, I would say that it's it's about finding the right partnerships. I mean, there are incredible people in Nigeria. Uh, to to some extent, Nigeria is a bit of a victim of its own success in the sense that it's just such a, a dynamic economy. Uh, the people of Nigeria are incredibly entrepreneurial, very innovative. Um, Nigerians who immigrate to the United States and Europe, I mean in Dubai, they just, they're just like serial entrepreneurs, incredibly uh, gifted. But the, the governmental complexities of Nigeria itself, sort of the kind of the cultural, the religious, the, the conflicts have really taken their toll on Nigeria becoming sort of like a place where you can, that you can really build a great business that's bankable, that's auditable by, by international standards. So it's not for lack of, of talent. It's not for lack of ambition. It's, it's more structural. So I really, you know, part of the, what has informed the design of small farm cities has been my experience in, in special economic zones um, in Nigeria and what you have is that where you can kind of build a zone that's kind of a safe haven for investment, investment can flow. In fact, clients we worked with in the um, in, in Southwest Nigeria from Asia were able to attract 
hundreds of millions of dollars in manufacturing investment just by creating like a safe like zone within Nigeria. So Nigeria is a country like by 2090, there will be 1 billion people in Nigeria. So like Nigeria's need to develop urban models, like, and their appetite to do that is fantastic. But what's missing is like, kind of what's a very practical way to organize like a thousand people or 10,000 people or 20,000 people, and then kind of organize that in such a way that you can really manage growth, manage sort of the scaling of that growth in a kind of a rational, globally auditable, transparent kind of way. It's very doable in Nigeria, but I would start with the zones, the the already existing special economic zones in Nigeria. Okay, awesome. All right. Well, this is our site in Malawi at Njewa. And in January of this year, this was a vacant lot, about one acre in size. And these are my colleagues, Leif and Grimsvin and Sai Chalamanda, uh, helping to lay out the, the site. So we can go next. Same site, just a different view. We took drone footage that you'll see here in a few minutes. We built greenhouses right away. Uh, these, these are small greenhouses, uh, eight by 13. Uh, what we wanted to do in January is while we're building the houses, while we're building the fish ponds, we wanted to start growing tomatoes. So we put plants as seedlings. Um, we put that together uh, within about a week. And these greenhouses were built as uh, basically as incubators. So concurrently with growing, uh, building the greenhouses, we started building the houses at our first site in Njewa. Seedlings, we got started. Um, what happens is you, you put a single tomato seed in and you start to grow them in greenhouse conditions. So uh, it's, it's like a laboratory. And this is our, a, a scene from February of this year. Digging the fish ponds, this was, um, what we did is built 50 square meter fish ponds. Um, we lined them with plastic and installed aeration to blow water into the ponds and we raised tilapia. So these ponds each had about 4,000 fish. So this is the rest of the construction of the houses. What we did is built a foundation and then these blocks are built from the dirt from the fish ponds so we basically circulate the dirt from digging out the fish ponds uh, we build create blocks they're almost like lego blocks 90 percent mud 10 percent concrete let them dry and stack them so here is a house in construction so you can see here, this is after about three to four, maybe three weeks after germination. And this is like um, sort of the first emergence of the tomato plants in our laboratory greenhouses. Uh, this was uh, probably the first of March of this year. Uh, that's just yours truly um, standing next to a completed fish pond. That's the pond uh, lined with plastic with uh, aeration and uh, that ventilates the, the pond and um, about 4,000 tilapia in, in that pond. So the completed pond, another view. 
This is then the, the main building under construction. And you can see sort of what the first phase looks like before installing the veranda over, um, over the full length of the, of the building. This is a model uh, for a starter house, a two bedroom, one bath. Uh, we built this house for about uh, $3,000. Um, we built this as a prototype um, for like a, a starter, like a starter home for a young family. And um, we actually substantially changed the design for the next property. Uh, so this was built in about 45 days and Soon you'll see the next version of this particular house design uh, that will will look uh, even better. I love I love landscape lights. You know you can turn you can turn an environment from being sort of cold to being really warm and really enjoyable. And um, so we we feature solar uh, solar lights around our properties. And this is just a view at dusk in um, at our site in Njewa. Uh, we we wanted to experiment a little bit with uh, an ornamental fish pond, so we had a little fun with this. Uh, it's exactly the same dimensions as the rectangular pond. It's 50 square meters. It's just in a little more interesting shape. And then we have a water fountain that circulates the water for aeration. And then our fourth greenhouse there is um, in the um, at the back of the the photo. Uh, another view, and then behind this pond is. Uh, a slightly upscale version of our starter house. So this is a two bedroom with two baths. And I should mention that um, what we did here is we built a, a little bit of a nicer house. Uh, we intended for this to be rented out as an Airbnb, and it is. Uh, currently this house is occupied by a team of researchers from Tel Aviv University. Um, so we are not just building houses in fish ponds and greenhouses, but we're also in the hospitality business uh, hosting guests from, um, from Tel Aviv University in this particular house. This is the, the prototype site. Um, you'll remember from the first slide, this was just a vacant lot and this is about 90 days later uh, where we have buildings, we have houses, we have the greenhouses, and this is a one acre prototype site at Njewa. And this is, um, we are going to be using this site uh, in fact, we're already now using this site as a wholesale distribution center. We're right next to the capital of Malawi. The sign of a of a project that's completed is your your you start to mow the lawns, and this is one of our guest rooms. And this is our first harvest of fresh tomatoes. We sell locally. Um, started selling our laboratory output. Started selling it right away to the local market to grocery stores and hotels uh, on the high end. So we're uh, really excited about the, the produce from the first site. All right, so this is our second site, about 10 kilometers to the west of the capital. Um, this is a site that we call Impingu, and this is a seven acre site, and um, this is what it looked like in May. So June, July, August, September. So about five months ago, uh, this was a field uh, growing corn and soybeans. All right, so what we wanted to do is get busy very quickly and take what you have seen in earlier slides at a laboratory scale, take it to a commercial scale. So this is uh, the first of 14 greenhouses that we started to build at the end of May. Um, 
of this year. For the houses, um, the, our construction method, the same method, um, taking fish, uh, taking fish pond dirt from the fish ponds, mixing with concrete and turning them into uh, blocks for construction using this machine, all manual, no electricity. Um, and um, this was our, this is our construction method. So this is sort of the three, the package um, in, in, this, in this photo. You have the house under construction, you have the fish pond and the greenhouse in the background. This is just another view, same package, only this house is a duplex. And so two families um, can, can use this house and surrounded by greenhouses. Next slide. So what we did is we then took our production to a whole new level in the first Photos that you saw, the three greenhouses, we did about 1,000 plants. In the greenhouses you're about to see, we did 23,000 plants. And so we scaled it by a factor of 23. And the seedlings produced at the Njewa site and then transplanted at the Mpingu site. So this is our first emergence uh, for, of the plants, and then you can get a sense of just the, the difference in scale. So each of 14 greenhouses has roughly 1,700 plants. So what you're looking at here is the emergence of tomato plants being grown now at the second site at a much larger scale. So this is the plants as of about, um, this is about three months actually about two months in and this is one of our agronomists Sarah Sambrira uh, she's a graduate of the, um, the Longway University of Agriculture and she's one of our agronomists um, she supervises all of these greenhouses another view of the plants you can see um, the the progress of the tomatoes and we keep it very well maintained each plant is a production unit there are 23,000 plants so we have built water system uh, dedicated so we have the main water tower and then that water tower then feeds smaller water uh, tanks that then feed the drip irrigation system inside of each greenhouse so all of this plumbing and uh, is something that we have now organized as part of our project management portfolio. And so this is the, the new version of the starter house. Um, from earlier slides, you could see our first version of the starter house, two bedroom, one bath for a, for a young family. Uh, this is using a slightly different method um, and just upgrades on the windows and, and the finishing and just the overall presentation. So uh, we're pretty excited about this particular unit, uh, which would retail for about $5,500. So this is the built site now at Mpingu. Um, what you're looking at there is about six of the seven acres. Uh, at the foreground is the main building. Uh, it is sort of our main office, hospitality center, uh, can very quickly uh, convert into a restaurant or cafeteria. Um, and so, and then in the center of this uh, site, we plan to build additional housing units um, in the coming months. So this is just another view, uh, a slightly higher elevation with our drone, um, with our drone video. And this is our, uh, human resource manager and Paul Liesi. 
And uh, Mpo and his wife and son are the very first residents of Small Farm City. This is just a uh, slightly elevated view of the duplex. So these are two units built in one building, uh, maximizing efficiency for electricity and water, and then surrounded by the fish ponds and the greenhouses. So a key issue, a key objective of Small Farm Cities is everyone who works for Small Farm Cities is, is, is moving forward with their lives. And these are our workers um, learning English. Uh, we're teaching everyone English. Uh, we will very soon be offering vocational courses in welding and carpentry. Um, these are, they're all getting trained uh, classically in agronomy, horticulture. And so um, our employees are, are the lifeblood of the, uh, of the organization. And the very first step is really to learn good English so that they can communicate effectively uh, with, with customers, with clients, and also interact with training materials that are in English uh, so that they can learn best practices in, in whatever vocational track that they, that they choose to take on. So as I mentioned earlier, we, are, we build our own furniture. This is uh, Martin who's building uh, bunk beds. Um, what we're doing is we're, we're employing a full-time carpenter, full-time welder, and we're able to dramatically reduce the cost of, of furniture and also we're building what we consider to be a franchisable business um, with, with this furniture. So this is the team, uh, part of the team, about half the team uh, are in the early going um, and just uh, going, going through. We, we use technology. Um, it's an everyday uh, part of the, of the company. So and our guys and, 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 our, and our women who are our agronomists are, are all very much computer literate and engaged in technological innovation. All right, so we're getting ready for harvest. Um, and so what you saw growing in the greenhouse, um, we just harvested this week our first metric ton. Um, we've already uh, gotten in one week uh, what the earlier site, the smaller site, would produce in about a month. So uh, we're pretty excited, and this is our um, this is our preparation for harvesting tomatoes. Uh, another view of the the crates and the uh, area where we use for packaging the tomatoes for sale to the market, and that is the view at night um, of our duplex. Another view of the uh, veranda over over the duplex. All right, so our team. This is Jonathan. This is Sarah, who you've already met. This is Kumbo Muntali, uh, really kind of our lead on construction. Simpo Liesi, head of human resources. This is Phoebe. She is our other agronomist, um, supervising greenhouses and greenhouse staff. This is Peace Capallo. He's been heading up our fish operation. This is Tiange. Uh, she is a level three certified welder, and she is... Um, not only the welder for small farm cities uh, at this phase, but she's also a trainer and will be training staff in welding. And this is Will Faza, he's uh, administrative staff. And that I believe should be the end of the slideshow. All right, so uh, a quick snapshot of the key data of the project so far. Um, the project we 
started construction in the end of January, early the 1st of February, uh, in Malawi, near Lilongwe, the capital of Malawi. Uh, we have two sites now. Over the last um, six months, we've built two sites, one in Njewa, which is just one acre. It's basically our laboratory site and now our wholesale distribution center. And then our second site is in, in Pingu. It's a, a larger scale up of the prototype. It's seven acres. And these are prototype farm clusters. Um, our objective is to be able to scale to hundreds, even thousands of acres. Um, but what we're doing right now is we're basically incubating uh, integrated systems, affordable housing, greenhouse horticulture, fish farming, now at the second site in Pingu, uh, we'll be incorporating poultry and adding a, a, a hatchery. So the Njewa site, the one acre site, we've got four greenhouses, four fish ponds, four houses or buildings, four building models, and then micro municipal water and electricity. So we basically tie together the greenhouses, the fish, the houses with a micro municipal water and power system. So it took us about 75 days to build this from kind of early mid-February into April and it was up, running, and we were harvesting uh, tomatoes and selling them in the market within about 90 days. The second site at Mpengu is the seven, second acre site that we're current. it's currently under construction. Um, we have now completed the 14 greenhouses, so 23,000 tomato plants, six fish ponds, um, five housing units, and then also tied together with a micro-municipal water system. And then our solar power is on individual units, so we are not yet connecting the whole site on an electrical grid. Uh, that will have to come in the next phase. Uh, we started construction at this second site in May and pretty much wrapped up construction uh, about four weeks ago. So we're doing some finishing touches, but for all intents and purposes, uh, the Mpengu site is up and running and uh, tomatoes are, are growing and fish are growing in the ponds. And the houses are now occupied uh, with residents. Planned activity at then the second site. What we want to do is max out the second acre, the seven acre site max out in terms of production. So uh, we are going to be building a fish hatchery uh, at the Mpingu site. We're going to be importing a, a proper fish hatchery system from the Netherlands. Uh, but the, the tilapia is a Nile tilapia that we'll be bringing in from Tanzania. Uh, developed by a Dutch company in Tanzania that's appropriate for the African market. So this uh, hatchery, we should be able to produce about, about a half million tilapia fingerlings uh, per year. We're going to be integrating a poultry operation, about 500 birds. It'll be producing about 100,000 eggs a year. We'll have running track. Um, that's already been laid out. A staff house, which will be an accommodation for 30 staff members who are working at the site and then can now live at the site and become members of the community. Uh, we're going to build 12 additional housing units. That would be six duplexes with two units each. Um, hospitality and tourism is going to factor in 
to our design here. So we're uh, accommodate. We're building basketball, pickleball courts, so that you know quality of life and entertainment and fun and recreation is very much part of the environment that we're building um, at our, a small farm city site. Uh, we're looking at a solar power microgrid. Uh, we will also have to connect to the national power grid. Uh, it's about a 50-50 proposition as to which one's a better deal. Do you go solar? Do you go grid? Um, these, th this decision has not yet been made. Uh, we're in the course of, of, of evaluating that decision. Uh, a purified water microgrid, this would be very unique uh, in Malawi, in Africa, where we actually purify the water so that when you, when you drink from the tap, uh, you can drink clean, purified water. So uh, we're looking at installing that system as well at Mpingu. And then finally at the Mpingu site, we're in the process of fully digitalizing as Internet of Things the entire property. So everything happening on the property tied into a digitalized platform. And that's so that really the data capture, the analysis, all the analytics can really inform and be replicable and franchisable. Uh, what we're doing is very much designed to be a prototype. And so digitalization of the entire asset is critical. And that goes from the housing to the agronomy, to the fish, to the poultry, and then all of the services and activities that are going on on the site, all digitalized. At the Njewa site then, the smaller site, the one acre site, it's close to town, close to the city. And so we're establishing, uh, as we speak, a wholesale produce market where we're not only marketing our own product wholesale to the capital market, but we're then we're also organizing sale of other producers, other growers. What we're taking is a corridor approach, which is in a hub and spoke model. You have two cities connected by a highway. And what we're doing is we're helping to formalize the trade along the highway. And we're, we at Small Farm Cities are then able to organize the horticulture market and also soon the tilapia market and the egg market. Uh, in, in a way that's never been done before. And so we're looking at tomato volumes. Um, we did a ton this week is just our first harvest, but we'll be working our way toward about five plus tons. Our own tomatoes we will then be also buying and selling onions from growers along the corridor. And then we should be hitting about a half ton a week in tilapia starting in about four months from now. Plus we're adding cucumber and pepper. Uh, housing sales, what we're doing is we will be now organizing um, housing sales at Mpingu and uh, these units will be then marketed for sale to the community, marketed to young professionals and even upper, um, even upper uh, income in a, in a mixed um, income community. So we're very eager to blend sort of affordable housing with more upscale housing into a, our community models. So we are, we are now organizing as well hospitality services, both at Njewa and Pingu. Uh, we are hosting research teams from Tel Aviv University at Njewa. Uh, we are organizing then uh, prospective uh, alliances and partnerships in the country with a major hotel 
service provider um, and looking at really getting involved in event tourism in Malawi as well as experiential tourism for international tourists, uh, looking to really organize this on an Airbnb platform. Uh, hospitality is a, is a big consideration in the development of a small farm city. Um, small farm city, it, you know, it's a community. It's an affordable planned community. So the properties are enjoyable for living, but they're also enjoyable and, and a very interesting option for what is really taking off in Africa, which is event tourism and experiential tourism, where whether the tourists are from the country itself and they're attending sporting events or arts or crafts or food, you know, food events, um, event tourism is very much we want and plan that uh, a small farm city is a destination uh, to be enjoyed and we are then organizing ourselves to provide these services. And then experiential tourism is really organizations from, uh, from around the world who are visiting Malawi and they want an experience that's in the field and closer to the people. Uh, experiential tourism is very much part of our uh, planning makeup. In terms of production costs and revenues, um, we have very, we've been very fortunate this year to be able to really capture and get a strong sense of our, our overall cost of production. So where we're coming in is each plant is a growing unit and our input costs per plant are about 63 cents. We're yielding about eight kilograms or 16 pounds for even, from every plant. We're getting about 55 cents in the market uh, average per, key, per kg for tomatoes. Uh, so we're generating about $4.40 per plant per season. And so when you incorporate then the cost of the greenhouse, uh, averaged out over five years at about a dollar a year, uh, we're able to generate a margin of about $2.77 per plant. What's been very important for small farm cities to establish within like the first six months of operations is to really nail down the costs. And, um, you know, understanding the costs, managing the, the supply chain disruptions, managing currency fluctuations, really getting a grip on sort of all of the complex elements of producing a crop at a global, at a global quality, at global standards that meet, you know, these kinds of requirements. This has been very much the priority of the last six months inside the greenhouse. And so um, we are very confident now of our numbers. We've had some severe disruptions this year. Uh, we had incredibly <laughs> incredible spikes in the cost of fuel as everyone had globally and Malawi as a landlocked African country certainly experienced uh, tremendous increases in the cost of fuel which then drove up the cost of every single aspect of our production supply chain. We have we feel like we've gotten at least a good analytical framework and we've really been able to boil down our costs and moving sort of what we had assumed to be the cost to what we have proven to be the cost of production, as well as a healthy revenue margin 
which gives us um, clarity and confidence moving forward with the um, with the model. So that is, I think, it for the fact sheet. This has been a pretty we, exhaustive, uh, exhaustive run. <laughs> so we we chopped some wood, man. Definitely, definitely. No, this was awesome. We got a lot of amazing content here. It was really, really, really great to walk through everything with you. I, I loved going through the photos and the fact sheet and being able to talk through all the questions together. So this is awesome. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for the time, John. And I uh, can't wait to, to kind of edit this and get it out. It's super cool. Well, that right. is fantastic. And hey, we, uh, we can't wait to host you in Malawi. I can't wait too. yeah, later this year, we're going to be we're going to be rolling through. I'm super, super excited about it. And hopefully we're going to hit some places in West Africa too. Um, okay. So it'll be it'll be really fun. Although, you know, it's the, the traveling, I got to say, if you do a pan Africa trip, it gets really hairy, you know, because there's many times when it's a full 24 hours between cities because of the way that you have to route the flights. So it's not like yeah. I'm used well, to going I, around Europe and Asia and the U.S., right? It's like it's going to be a different beast. So I'm kind of curious. Well, I've, I've, been in, uh, I've been in at least half of the African countries. So oh, wow. you let me know. Yeah. Give, um, give, me your dates, give me your dates and your itinerary. I can probably connect the dots for you. Yeah, well, we will. We will. All right, man. Thank you so much, Sean. We'll talk to you. All right. Be well. Thanks. Take, Take care. care. Cheers.